0: Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Malouf, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well.
1: Tonight we're going to have what I refer to as the talk. We're going to have the talk tonight, and I call it the talk because it is the topic that we need to talk about, but we don't always like to talk about. This is the topic that can make us feel insecure or, I don't know, jealous sometimes. Sometimes it can trigger some shame or competitiveness because in this talk we have the P word. And the P word is practice. We're gonna talk about practice How long do we sit? How often do we sit? And what does it mean to us when we're sitting in a particular way or for a particular amount of time or on a particular day of the week? And it is not just me and others in this group or other groups that struggle talking about practice skillfully. In monastic settings, oftentimes the abbot will discourage students well i guess it's them students monks uh, or nuns in the monastic setting to not share or talk about their practice with the other practitioners but to only talk about practice with the head abbot or senior teachers or students and this prevents jealousy or false ambition or false pride because as soon as you start talking about practice then person sitting next to you says, I practice this much. And then you think, oh, I practice so much more than that. So that means dot, dot, dot. Or the person practices for a lot longer than you, and suddenly you feel like, oh, I'll never be enlightened. I don't even practice half that much. And that person is so much more skilled and so on. So we're going to have the talk. We're going to talk about practice today. And I talk about this, I don't know, I think every four months or so I think I bring this up in some form because I think it's really helpful for us to talk about it and I think it's important to find a skillful way of doing so. So that's why I bring it up. So I'm going to bring it up again and I would invite you to just be mindful of how it feels for you when we talk about it. What does it feel like when we talk about practice? How much to practice and what we're doing with practice? So just see how it lands for you. See if there's any insecurity or A feeling like you don't want to be judged or maybe a little jealousy just see how that lands for you as we talk tonight the big question about this topic is why is establishing meditation practice so difficult why is establishing meditation practice so difficult and what is exactly the struggle or why do we struggle with this and i'm going to give you the secret answer or the secret teachings as they say The reason that meditation practice, establishing continuous practice is so challenging is because it's so difficult to meditate. That is the answer. Meditation by its nature is really damn hard. It is one of the most difficult things you'll ever do in your life, establishing a regular meditation practice. And we need to know that going in. We really need to remind ourselves that meditation's hard Because it's designed that way. It is, in fact, hard. It's not hard because you're failing. It's not hard because you suck at it. It's not hard because of anything you're doing wrong. It's challenging because meditation's challenging. And we easily forget this, and we judge ourselves, and we shame ourselves, and we think we're not doing it right, and we think, gosh, if if I could just stop the wandering mind, then I could get down to practice. If I could just get over this craving for a latte, or if I could just get rid of this sloth and torpor, everything would be great. And we forget that that's the practice. Working through all that stuff is the art of meditation. So I always like to remind us that there's no shortcut to learning how to do this. It is hard and it's our nature to resist. It's our nature to want to do anything and everything but be with our breath or be in the present moment experience. It's counter to our biology. It's counter to our psychology. It's counter to our culture to want to sit in solace, in quiet for long periods of time, especially if we're going to sit for long periods of time regularly. It's going to look weird to some people. It's even going to look weird to our own hearts and minds. So we, if we start there, it's much easier to have the conversation. The mind doesn't want to settle down. It just doesn't. Asking the mind to settle down is kind of like inviting a child. <laughs> it's like inviting a child to a birthday party. And when you take them to the birthday party, there aren't any presents. There's no cake. In fact, there aren't any other kids there. And you leave the kid at the party and you say, I'm going to be back in 40 minutes. Try and enjoy yourself. That's what meditation is. Meditation is Inviting the mind to sit down and do something without any entertainment, anything fun, anything interesting to do, and wondering why the mind wanders away three minutes into the practice. The mind doesn't want to sit in the present moment. The present moment is boring. There's nothing there. It's just breath and body and some thoughts arise and some emotions arise. There's just nothing there to occupy the mind's attention. And the mind isn't used to finding pleasure outside of our sensual experiences. It doesn't want to go to a party without music and other people. It wants to be with others and think about others. It wants to be engaged. It wants music and drugs and sex. It does not want to sit on a cushion of buckwheat and be aware of breathing. It's just not fun for the mind. And if we can remember this, it really is easier when we practice. If we remember that we're depriving the mind of it's fun, then... At least when we settle in and the mind's like, no, I don't want to do this, we're like, well, of course you don't. It's not fun for you. But I'm going to teach you to make this fun, and that's when it's going to get good. So we have to think of ourselves as kind of a parent that's guiding a child along into an experience that it doesn't really want to do. But we know as the adult in the room that eventually it's going to be enjoyable, healthy, skillful, and nourishing. But in the beginning, the child's going to see it as a punishment, it's going to be boring. And they're really not going to want to do it. And the child's going to rebel. And we have to gently establish a relationship that's loving and kind and understanding so that we don't intimidate the child or blame the child or go to war with the child. We just want to train the heart and mind in a gentle and progressive way to learn how to be present and to learn to see the beauty and the benefit of present moment awareness. And that is, in fact, the practice of meditation. Going into practice thinking that it should be easy is one of the biggest detriments to our progress on the path. When we get down on ourselves and we blame ourselves, when we think, oh my gosh, this is just not working, those kind of moments are really the most challenging. When we think of advancing in practice, I'll tell you this one of the signs of maturity in practice is that when your practice feels terrible, you still walk away thinking, oh, great practice. My mind wandered the whole time. I brought, it, I brought it back two or three times. Great, 40 minutes. That's my practice for the day. And you feel successful. You feel like that was the present moment. That is really maturity of practice. The more we resist the wandering mind, the more we battle the hindrances, the harder they are to manage. As we learn that that is a part of the practice and the challenge and difficulty is about that become so much easier to be successful. And we start to lean into practice more. We start to enjoy it more. And definitely at times we'll look forward to it because there will be some rest and ease, no matter how challenging the experience in the sit. When you leave the sit, there will be benefits that you'll notice in daily life. So it's well worth the time to be able to work with the boredom, work with the resistance, knowing in the end there will be gifts There will be cake, (laughs) there will be jhana, there will be bliss in some form that will come with persistence and patience in your practice. I want to remind us also that the Buddha was fully aware, this is comforting to me, it's comforting to me to always recall that the Buddha was acutely aware that meditation practice was difficult. He wasn't under some kind of illusion that it was going to be easy for folks or that it was even easy for him. And I want to remind you of this quote. Let's see if I can find it here. Give me a second. I want to read this quote. I read this, I think, on the last retreat we had. So this is the quote from the Ayakana Sutta where the Buddha is asked to teach after he's enlightened. And he second guesses guesses whether he's going to teach because he acknowledges that meditation is incredibly challenging. So he says this. This Dhamma that I have realized is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced only by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely specific conditionality, dependent origination. It is hard to see this truth, namely the stillness of formations, the relinquishing of attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, awakening. If I were to teach the Dharma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troubling for myself. I, I love this quote because it reminds us that the Buddha got awakened Someone approaches the I can't remember if this was a deva or if this was the other students, but I can't remember the context now. Inviting the Buddha to teach and the Buddha's like, "Ah, oh, hell no, I'm not going to teach this. This stuff is hard. No one's going to want to sit and be awake and aware of breathing. No one's going to want to do this because we're attached to the world. We're attached to worldliness. So that just gives me great joy to think that even the Buddha, after he was awakened, thought... Man, trying to teach others this is going to give me such a headache. I don't even want to teach anybody how to do this. He probably thought to himself, people are just going to whine and complain about how difficult it is. And so (laughs) that's what we do, right? We sit on the cushion and we're like, oh my God, this is so stupid. Who invented this? This is a ridiculous activity. So this I take refuge in. I take refuge in the Buddha acknowledging that this is just tough and that's a part of the jam. That I take refuge in. This equally comforts me in spite of the fact that the Buddha is like, no, I don't really want to teach this. He teaches it anyway, right? Because he knows that getting over the struggle, getting beyond the hindrances, getting past all the self-doubt leads to some awakening, something that is fully worth all of our efforts. So not only does he teach the Dharma, he vigilantly encourages us to practice with urgency and intensity and commitment that's oftentimes described with this incredible zeal. And so this is one of the quotes, and this is the famous quote that talks about what we say, practice like your hair is on fire. And he says this, just as one whose clothes or head had caught fire would certainly put forth extraordinary desire. Effort, zeal, enthusiasm, mindfulness, and clear comprehension to extinguish the fire on his clothes or head. So that person should put forth extraordinary desire, effort, zeal, enthusiasm, mindfulness, and clear comprehension to obtain the wholesome qualities of awakening. So the Buddha says, Look, this is going to be rough. But you got to practice and you really should practice like your life depends on it. It was that worth the awakening. It worth the awakening to engage with that kind of determination. So whenever we talk about practice, I would invite you to consider those two things. One, practice is tough. Buddha says so. And it's totally worth the experience. It's totally worth to sit more, sit longer, go on retreats, go on day longs, come to daily sits, whatever it takes to get that zeal, to put out the fire of suffering is well worth your time. A couple misconceptions that I think can be helpful to dispel when we think about our practice. One of the things that the heart and mind does is get jealous of other people. And this happens the most noticeably of this is like when you're on retreat. So if you've ever been on retreat and you're sitting with other people in a room for long hours Inevitably, you take a peek around the room and everyone's sitting there with their eyes closed. And in your mind, you imagine that everybody in the room is totally blissed out, that their mind is quiet, there's no fatigue, and you're thinking, everybody else looks like they're just totally rocking this, and I have wandering mind. And you think I'm the only one with wandering mind, and everybody else in the room is just blissed out of their gourd. This is the competitive, comparative mind. And we often, when we think of our practice, we think of everybody else in the room as having this peaceful, serene, concentrated mind and ours is just the one that's failing. It's just not so. Everybody in the room is struggling because that's the nature of the practice. I was managing a retreat for Goenka and the guiding teacher who was teaching the retreat Uh, was reminding us that when we look around the room and we see people sitting, so here there would have been a hundred people. When you see all these people in the room, don't forget that they're struggling, that inside there is a lot of pain coming up. There's a lot of physical pain, emotional pain. And when you look at them, offer them compassion. Don't forget that the work that they're doing is really challenging. On the outside, everyone looks serene, but as the person in the room holding the space, remember to offer love, care, and compassion because what you see on the outside is not what's going on on the inside. <laughs> and someone once said, if if you were to take a meditation retreat and take the participants and hook up their hearts and minds to a boombox and broadcast the sound of the meditative experience, it would not be wind chimes and gongs. It would be... <laughs> It would be the Jaws theme, it would be like horror movie music, it would be like explosions and accidents, and I mean, it's just tumultuous, it would be chaos. That's not what we think though when we're sitting, we always think everyone's got this down, everyone is totally unbounded and compassionate and loving, and that we're just contracted and irritable and feisty, and that we just don't know what we're doing, not so, not so. So remember that. Remember that your heart and mind is the heart and mind of the Buddha. Same dukkha. Same dukkha. We're all going through the dukkha. Another thing. I mentioned this earlier. The struggle is the practice. The dukkha is the practice. We're not learning to meditate so that we can then use meditation to end suffering. Learning to meditate is the end of suffering. It is not a tool that we use to transcend. The learning of the practice is the transcendence. We're often waiting to learn to meditate so that we can go out into life and use meditation to go end the pain or get more loving or do all those things that we imagine meditation will do. But the fact is, the practice of meditation, learning how to do it, that's where the healing takes place. The very struggle with the wandering mind will make you more compassionate. It'll allow you to bring more authenticity into your life. It doesn't feel like that, of course. On the cushion, it doesn't feel so good most of the time. Off the cushion, you will see the results. So remember that the meditation, I always, I still say this. So 27 years later, I, I was, like I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I went on retreat over the summer. One of my days was really difficult. Middle of my retreat, I'm saying, How am I supposed to get over suffering if the meditation is so uncomfortable? And here I am wrestling against the wandering mind, trying to stop the dukkha so I can then get over the dukkha. Then, of course, you come back and you get grounded and you realize that's the practice. This is a practice to get over suffering. You get over suffering through the practice. You don't do the practice and then get over the suffering. If we can use that framework when we sit... So much work can get done with a lot less stress and a lot less tension. Another hangup we have around this is time. In our culture, and I guess I can only speak from North American culture since that's where I'm from, it's just not normative to take time out of our self-care. We're not very good with self-care in North America in general. Taking time away, taking vacation, taking rest, taking naps, it's always seen as a kind of laziness or not always, but often is seen as laziness. It's seen as uh, something that only certain people can do. We just don't take the time out. So sitting on a cushion and saying, oh, I'm going to sit for 40 minutes every day is kind of like, gosh, but there's so many other things I could be doing with my life. Do I really want to spend 40 minutes a day on a meditation cushion? It's tough for us to reorient or to reframe this experience as having incredible value. Oftentimes what we do is we've assigned so much value to the material world, so much value to sense experience that it's difficult to assign that same value to time away from the world, time going inward, time being peaceful, time being at ease. It's hard for us to shift our value center, to raise the Dharma to a place in our life where it's necessary to come first. That is a really big challenge. The more we can change the value orientation towards meditation, the easier it is to get to the cushion. I love, I'm going to share a story. I I don't know if I can stick the landing on this story because I'm telling a story. I'm going to tell a story that Goinka tells on one of his 10-day retreats. And I believe his telling of it is a retelling. So I'll try to stick the landing on this. This is about the value of meditation. And I love this story. I always think of this story when I talk about the value of meditation. So here's the story. There's this famed professor that's taking a boat trip. Very heady individual, very educated individual. He's on a boat sailing across the ocean. On the first night, he approaches one of the sailors. And the professor asks the sailor, how long have you been working on this boat? How long have you been a sailor? And the sailor says, my whole life, my entire life. I've just worked on this boat. I just sail. That's what I do. And the professor says, well, if you've spent your whole life on this boat, you certainly must know about marine biology. The sailor looks at him in confusion. I don't know what biology is. And the professor looks at him with some scorn and says, marine biology, you know, the life in the ocean. How could you spend your whole life as a sailor and never have learned about marine biology? You've wasted a quarter of your life. Sailor's a little sad. He walks away. Second night, professor finds the sailor again and says, you tell me you lived your whole life sailing. So you must, you must know about astronomy. Sailor says, I don't know what astronomy is. And the professor says, it's the study of the stars. How can you not know about astronomy? From my perspective, you've wasted half your life. Sailor feels really sad. Gosh, I've just been on this boat all this time and I've never learned anything. I've wasted half my life. Third night, professor finds the sailor again. Professor says, you've been a sailor your whole life. You must certainly know about meteorology. Sailor again, I don't know what that is. I don't know about meteorology. Professor again, it's all about the weather. You certainly have wasted three quarters of your life on this boat. Later that evening, sailor rushes in to the professor's cabin. Professor, professor, you have to come quick. There's been an emergency drags the professor out onto the deck turns out they're in a storm the sailor looks at the professor and says professor do you know about swimology professor says, <laughs> professor says swimology that's not even a real thing i don't even know what that is and the sailor says you know swimology do you know how to swim the professor says no i don't the sailor says oh that's a shame the boat has hit a rock and it's sinking Those of us who know Swimology are going to swim over to the shore, and we're going to get saved. Those who don't are going to stay and drown. It looks like you've wasted all of your life. (laughs) The value of something. Meditation is Swimology. No matter what we learn in our life, we got to learn to swim, because the boat is always sinking. Ruth used to say, There is always a leak in the canoe. There's always a leak in the canoe. No matter what we do with our life, we are on a sinking ship. There is going to be stress, suffering, discontent, and ultimately death. The Dharma is the best thing we can learn in light of being on this boat. We gotta learn to swim. We could do all kinds of other things, learn about things, enjoy particular things, have hobbies, friendships, families, so much we can do. All of that is reasonable, but we have to remember to place value on the most important thing, which is the liberation. The ability to show up in the world as kind, generous, loving beings and to free ourselves from suffering so we can help others to do the same. That is the aspiration. I love that story. It always cracks me up. It's better to hear it from Goenka because he's a better storyteller. It's worth going on his 10-day retreat for that story and a few others, in in my opinion. So, my friends, I appreciate learning Swimology with you. Let's return to body for a couple minutes. Take a long, slow, deep breath, in through the nose and out through the mouth. And on the exhale, relax fully into body. Letting go of thinking, all that energy of discussion, and just feeling embodied being. Returning to shape and form, That sense of your body in the room, sitting. So easy to lose touch with this grounded being. This home base in space and time. Breathing body. And with each breath, we might hold in awareness a sense of gratitude. Gratitude for being able to be here this evening in such generous company. Gratitude for our practice. Gratitude for being safe, safe enough to join tonight without fear, fear of harm. It's such a privilege to come together. ground ourselves with a sense of welcomed ease, grateful for the present moment and all that it offers. And with this awareness, touching down, back into body, back into breath, that opened heart, connected to that which is good, in spite of it all, that inner goodness that thrives. With that as our framework, we might end this evening by asking a question. In this moment, if I could wish anything for all beings, and know that that wish would come to pass what would it be what does your heart long for for all beings in this moment let us offer that to the world May all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings be safe, free from harm. May all beings know true love, kindness, and compassion in this very life. May all beings be free. May all beings be free. Lovely as always to see all your wonderful faces. Thanks for joining thank you, me you. in practice. Thank you. Please unmute yourself and say goodbye to all your friends. Goodbye, friends. Goodbye to all your friends. friends. Bye. Bye. bye, thank you. Bye, everyone. Sleep well. Sleep well,
0: everybody. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge, so this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.